This is Family Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the month, so the kids stay in service with us. Um, FYI, what my kids do is they bring notebooks, and they will journal every word that I say. (laughs) Well, they journal something that I say, and they draw a picture, and, and then we look at it later, and so, uh, but that's what our kids do. So we give them journals, which are basically notebooks. Um, I appreciate Andrew coming up and sharing uh, today. Um, you know, I think sometimes, especially when you think of pastors or, or just those who work within the churches, you go, well, well they, just, they just love people just naturally, and it's just easy for them, but uh, the same grace that you need is the same grace that we need uh, to continue to grow in that love for Jesus Christ. And the good news is... Uh, God gives that grace every single day through his word, through his spirit, just with us. And so um, it is good. So thank you very much for sharing. We are in a series. It's called The Five Solas. Today we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you'd like to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to there. Um, We've begun this series, The Five Solas, uh, a few weeks ago. We're on week four right now. And these solas are about defining the gospel. About 500 years ago, the Roman Catholic Church had begun to move away from the gospel. They began to add works to salvation. They began to deny that Jesus Christ was sufficient for salvation. They said that rather than grace being a person, it became a thing, something that you just needed to add to your life. They undermined scripture by means of raising papal authority, that of the Pope, and also that of councils, uh, to the point of infallibility. So what they said is, well, Scripture's not our only authority, but the Pope will speak on equal terms with that of Scripture, and also all the councils will be equal. Therefore, they are infallible as well. And what happened is as these things began to happen is that the gospel was slowly pushed farther and farther and farther away to the point that what is known as the Protestant Reformation came about. Men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and many others rose up and said, wait, wait, hold a minute. That's not what we see in Scripture. What we're talking about is a different kind of gospel. And so what they begin to do is define the gospel according to the word of God. And that's where we came up with the five solas. So the five solas, while they originated 500 years ago, they really go all the way back to the Bible. It was just 500 years ago they were put on paper as a means of defining the gospel in order to reform the church that it would come back to God's word. So often when we talk about the five solas, so here they are, we we phrase them like this. The gospel comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for God's glory alone. That's how we talk about it. And the first week we did was we looked at scripture, then we looked at grace alone, then faith alone. Today we are in Christ alone. And so uh, James Montgomery Boyce wrote a quote or wrote a book, and and in that book he wrote about Christ alone. So I want to read a quote from him that I think is a good way of defining what what we're talking about when we say Christ alone. He writes, Justification because of Christ alone means that Jesus has done the necessary work of salvation utterly and completely, so that no merit on the part of man, no merit of the saints, no work of ours performed either here or later in purgatory, can add to this completed work. In fact, 
Any attempt to add Christ's work, to add to Christ's work, is a perversion of the gospel and indeed is no gospel at all. And in fact, we'll be in the book of Galatians uh, starting in two more weeks, and we will be then going through Galatians 1, 6 through 9. In fact, Andrew will be preaching that sermon probably around February 19th, and it is on. We do not add anything to the gospel. The moment you do, you have moved into a false gospel. Anyways, I digress. Boyce continues to say, to proclaim Christ alone is to proclaim him as the Christian's one and only sufficient prophet, priest, and king. We need no other prophet to reveal God's word or will. We need no other priest to mediate God's salvation and blessing. We need no other kings to control the thinking and lives of believers. Jesus is everything to us and for us in the gospel. So when we talk about Christ alone, we're really talking about the songs that we even sung earlier this morning. And just so you know, when my wife picks out the songs or whoever's leading, we're purposeful in those words. For one, we want them to match up to whatever scripture that we are reading, and we want them to be doctrinally sound. Just so you know, when you come and you sing... I hope you like them. We hope you like the songs. But really what we want is to make sure when we're singing and praising God, we're not only praising him, but we're reminding ourselves of the true gospel. And today we sang about how Christ alone is our salvation. Now today in our context, 1 Peter, Peter's writing to, to many churches who are in exile. And what he's writing, he's, he's writing to them and saying, you, you know, it's going to be hard being a Christian. And suffering is going to come. And so he writes, and let me give a little context here. We'll be in first, verse 18. But in verse 14, Peter writes, But if even you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He's writing to them and saying, Look, you're probably going to suffer in this world, and some of you are going to suffer because you do dumb things, like evil things, and you steal things. And that's, that's not really that great when you suffer for that. But it's a good thing when you suffer for even doing what is right. And Peter will go on to say, look, there are people who are going to trouble you and persecute you. You will probably be arrested. You might even be brought before courts at this time. You might lose your jobs. And he says, at those times, don't fear man. He's like, don't fear them, but, but rather what you're to do is honor Christ and you're to behave like Christ. And he writes, to be gentle and respectful. And then in verse 17, he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So, so leading up to our text, he's writing about the fact that suffering is a very real thing in this world and that most likely we will endure it. And he's saying, when that happens, don't fear, man. He's directing us to, to look at God. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So he's going to pick up on his line of thinking in chapter 4 and talk about how we are to suffer and why it is that we can suffer well and how we can honor Christ in it. So between verse 17 and chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to give a section of Scripture that's going to say, and this is how you will be prepared to suffer well. When you are persecuted, when you are struggling, when, when people are coming at you, and not just trying to kill you, but maybe you lose a job or, or, or whatever the case is. He's saying, we can stand firm in our faith. And so the passage that we are about to read is for the very purpose 
of helping the church to stand firm. And he's going to point us to four things. And I apologize, we're going to look at one of them. So I I would love to go verses 18 through 22 and go through all of them because it has been fun reading and studying that. Um, But for time's sake today, and uh, we're not going to be able to do all that. But these are the four things he's going to do. He's going to say, I want you to remember that your salvation is in Christ alone. And that's what we're going to really focus on this morning. Second, he's going to say, I want you to remember the days of Noah. Third, I want you to remember your baptism. Fourth, he says, I want you to remember Christ alone has resurrected and now rules over all powers at the right hand of God. So he's going to bring these four things that he wants the church to remember. Now today we're going to look uh, simply at your salvation is in Christ alone. And what I want to point out is that when Paul, Peter, and I'm going to get this messed up today. I'm going to say Paul when I mean Peter, so just know what I mean. <laughs> like as I was going through this, I was even writing Paul. And so I was, keep changing it to Peter. Um, um, when Peter is trying to help the church prepare for suffering, prepare how to live, how to honor Christ He points us to our theology. He points us to to what we believe. And and so I I want to encourage you, your theology matters in everything. Your theology matters for who you vote for as a president and how you respond to that president when you like or dislike what he does. Your theology will matter on how you love your spouse, on how you raise your kids. Your theology will matter on how you spend your money. Your theology matters in how you go to work, and the ethic that you have when you're there. Your theology matters in everything that you do. And so Peter is writing to Christians who know theology, but he's helping to encourage them that they would know it all the more so they would continue to stand firm. So I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, we never stop growing in our understanding of God and what he's done for us in Christ. We never stop Because we keep forgetting truths also. And so we're always reminding ourselves of the truths of God. We're always asking that God would make us more and more into his image. We're memorizing scripture that it would sit within our hearts, that it would keep us from sin. And so as we come into this today, I want you to understand we're looking at theology. We're looking at biblical truths that tell us about God and what he's done for us in Christ and who we are because of that. And it's these truths that are going to help strengthen us as not only as, as we face suffering, but whatever it is that we face in this world. And so one thing we do here is we stand when we read the word of God. So I invite you to stand with us. We do this because we believe scripture alone is our authority. And you can go back three weeks and, and listen to that sermon if you'd like. Um, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, 
authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. And Lord, we're just excited about being here. Excited about being with your people today. Excited about being able to open up your word and, and talk about your love, about your son Jesus, about what you have done for us all by your grace. And Father, I pray that as we look at Christ alone and that how we're saved by Christ alone, and it's in Christ alone that we will stand in our faith and we will persevere in our faith. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith today. I pray we grow in our knowledge for you, our love for you, our conviction for you. That the anchor within our heart, which is you, Lord Jesus Christ, would grow in its strength today. That we would understand how you keep us firm and steadfast in all things because you are steadfast. Father, we love you. Give us wisdom this morning as we look at your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so, how is Peter going to strengthen and encourage his readers to suffer well? How are they not to fear man, but honor Christ and live like Jesus? How is he going to help these people who are facing persecution and the very real possibility of losing their jobs, the very real possibility of being arrested, brought before court, where they will have to give a defense for their faith? How is he going to help them have spines of steel... And not spines of jello that will be crushed under the weight of suffering. Well, he takes them to Jesus. This is the first thing that he does. He takes them to Christ. And we have said this before, and so I'm sure that you have heard this. If not, it's good to know. Um, Tim Keller, it's a famous quote kind of now by him. The gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life, but is the A to Z of the Christian life. Meaning, we don't just start with the gospel and kind of check it and be like, well, that sure is good stuff. And then we go on and we add our own works to it and we do whatever we want. Um, But the gospel not only saves us, but it sustains us also. The gospel is the very strength we need if we're going to stand firm in the gospel. And in fact, in this section, verse 18 begins with looking at Christ alone and what he has done for us. And if you look at verse 22, it really looks at, Christ alone has resurrected and is now at the right hand of God. Everything is bracketed in by who Christ is and what he has done. And in fact, throughout the letter of 1 Peter, he continually refers to us who Christ is and what he has done for us so that we, the church, would understand how is it that we live? How is it that we are to um, live and honor Christ in this life? And so what he's going to do now, he's going to direct us to Christ, and we're going to learn just certain truths about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So number one, we see Christ alone suffered for sins. We see that verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Now your Bible may have the word died. Does anyone have the word died in it? Anyone? Few? Mark that out, right? Suffer? Um, suffer is a better translation. Um, if you look throughout the context, Peter's writing about suffering, to suffer, to suffer. In fact, 11 times he uses the verb to suffer. And so here as he comes, he's not switching words, switching metaphors, or switching uh, uh, the, the way he's been communicating. Um, 
He's talking about Christ has suffered. You're going to suffer. Christ has suffered. And yes, the suffering does refer to his death. So the word death, it's not like it, it's wrong, but the word suffer communicates more thoroughly what he's communicating and the, um, the train of thought um, that he's been in context with. But what we see, Christ alone is the one who comes and suffers. And if we look at the end of verse 18, it says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He suffered to the point of death. If you've been in church a long time, this isn't news. This isn't new to you. We know about the cross of Jesus Christ, but we remind ourselves, Christ has suffered. Here the church is suffering. Peter wants to strengthen them. So the first thing he says, Christ suffered. You're not going through an abnormal thing right now. Christ has suffered. And he alone has suffered for sins. In, in Hebrews 9, verse 13, let me read this. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? And that's talking about the suffering of Christ, the death of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In fact, if we were to just go back to 1 Peter 1.18, so just earlier in this letter, Peter writes, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Again, he's referring to the fact that Christ has suffered and died like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the first thing Peter wants to draw attention to is, you are suffering, Christ has suffered also. But why? Why is it important that Jesus has suffered? He goes on to say, because Christ alone is sufficient to satisfy God's wrath. That's the second point. Christ alone is sufficient to satisfy God's wrath. And just so you know, all the blanks are S's. There's nothing that makes a preacher happier when you can like get all the blanks with the same letter. Um, so just so you know, it brings me great joy. Side note, just so you know. Um, for Christ also suffered once for sin. Do you see that word once? That's not like a small word. That's massive. Christ suffered once. So we have your suffering. Don't worry. Christ suffered too, and he suffered once for sins. Not many times. He, didn't, he was not repeatedly crucified. He was crucified once. Hebrews 10 says this. And Hebrews, let me just tell you, is a gold mine for understanding the work of Jesus Christ. It's a gold mine for understanding the fact that he comes as a priest and the sacrifice. If you want to understand what it means for Jesus Christ to come as a sacrifice and to die on the cross and what that looks like and the implications for us, Hebrews is an extraordinary book in that regard. But let me read Hebrews 10, verse 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you see it? The priest would offer many sacrifices. 
Why? Because there's no way that the sacrifice of a lamb or a goat or a bull actually takes away our sins. An animal cannot stand in your place and and pay the punishment for your sin. And so they're having to offer them repeatedly. Repeatedly they were offered. They were not a sufficient sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath. But then it's contrasted with Jesus comes, he offers a single sacrifice for sins. And then verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What this means is that Jesus absorbs the wrath of God for all who believe in Jesus Christ. So if you have faith in Jesus, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, then you need to know God has zero wrath towards you. Do you know that? Like Zero wrath towards you. Jesus has fully satisfied God's requirement of sacrifice for our sins. He's absorbed that sacrifice for us. This means that every action that God takes towards you is one of a tender, compassionate, loving father like he would to his son. And not that of a prison prison warden to a prisoner. Every action God takes to you is one of love and compassion. Every action. Because he has no wrath towards you. Now think about this. Why is this so important? You have a church. They're beginning to suffer. They're they're being persecuted. They're being arrested for their faith. They're being brought before judges. What's a natural thing? What did I do wrong? Does God not love me? Am I being punished? Do I need to somehow earn my way back into God's grace? What's gone wrong here? No, by grace alone you've been saved. Through, ju- through faith alone you've been saved. In Christ alone you have been saved. What this means is whatever difficulty, persecution, struggle, problem you are currently facing, it is not God's wrath towards you. It is not God's wrath. A difficult marriage, difficulty finding a job, difficult parenting, whatever it is, that's not God's wrath for you. Long lines at Walmart might be, but no. <laughs> Sometimes I'm, I'm tempted. Um, none of those things are. And you know, we think like that, don't we? Like something goes wrong. What did I do? Did I not spend enough time in my Bible study? If only I had prayed more. No, those are all works. Those are good things we do, but we don't do those to earn God's grace. Because God, by his grace, through faith in Christ, has no wrath for those who have believed in Jesus Christ. Now, every week we've been trying to contrast what the Roman Catholic Church has believed. And we do this, we're not trying to condemn these people. We're not. So I hope you know that. But we need to know what led to the formation of these solas. And also, what what is those distinctions? Where do we need to make sure we're guarding today? And one thing we need to do is make sure that we understand Christ alone and we don't let anything come and push Christ to the peripheral. And and one thing for us to understand is how the Roman Catholic Church takes communion. Because we're going to take communion today. And they take it very different than we do. When we take communion later, we're going to take bread and we're going to take juice. The bread represents the body of Christ. The juice represents the blood of Christ. And we take these in remembrance of Jesus Christ. We take these in remembrance that Jesus came, died on a cross, and rose again that we who have faith in him would be forgiven. We believe, we do this out of worship and obedience, and we believe Christ is 
with us, although not physically, because right now he sits at the right hand of the Father. We see that even in verse 22. He's at the right hand of the Father. But because his Spirit is with us, Christ is present with his Spirit with us. So that's what we do. When we come, we are celebrating what Christ has done, and we're also looking to the future Awaiting for his return. We know because Christ came and died, he will come again to gather his bride. Now the way the Roman Catholic Church did it and does it is very different. They believe in what is called transubstantiation. Everyone want to practice that word at lunch today? Let's go. Anyone want to take a, a stab at spelling that word? It's a pretty good one. Transubstantiation. Um, and so this isn't going to get too technical, but we need to know this. This is good to understand. So when they will take the bread and the juice, they believe that the bread and the juice, when it touches your tongue, actually becomes the literal body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. Now, immediately people went, well, that's disgusting. And so then they had to modify and say, well, you're not actually eating Jesus. Um, it doesn't actually taste like his body, but what they say is, while it still maintains the taste of bread and the taste of the juice, it does literally become his body and his juice uh, and his blood. And the reason is, is because what they're doing is they're re-sacrificing Jesus at that moment. And you got to get this. They're re-sacrificing Jesus because they don't believe in Christ alone. At the cross, Jesus did not fully satisfy the wrath of God. And therefore, if we are going to keep earning grace, if we're going to keep having grace, we're going to need to do works. Part of these works is doing these sacraments. And we do these as a means of gaining grace. And one of them for the Holy Roman Catholic Church is through the re-sacrificing of Jesus. So let me read a quote from their documentation. They call it the Eucharist. They do that because that means Thanksgiving. The Eucharist is also a sacrifice. In the Eucharist, Christ gives us the very body which he gave up for us on the cross, the very blood which he poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So exactly what Jesus did there is exactly what he's doing here. In the divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, so they call it a divine sacrifice, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner here. You got to understand this. So when they're taking communion, they're re-sacrificing Jesus Christ at that moment for the payment of sins to obtain more grace for the hope that they would become more holy. And that moves us right away from grace alone and Christ alone. Now again, I don't say these things to condemn them, but there's a wrong teaching that is there that moves to a false gospel. And that has been a threat since the first century, 500 years ago, and it's a threat today. It's a, it's a threat in Protestant churches, churches like this. There are things that can come in and that will try to deter us from the gospel. That will say Christ is great, but yet we need this also. So no matter what it is, we have to understand this is a fight we will continually have to make sure Christ alone is our salvation. Um, the Once a pastor, David Platt, a theologian, he's now the president of the Southern Baptist Mission Board, he used a, uh, an illustration in one of his books, which I really 
really enjoyed. Um, he said, imagine that you're in a field and that there is a wall of water coming at you. It's a thousand miles wide, it's a thousand miles high, and it's coming at you at a thousand miles an hour. There's no way of escaping this wall of water. And this is the wrath of God against every believer apart from Jesus Christ. Because we are born sinful, every believer has God's wrath coming, and we have absolutely no means of escaping it. And so as it comes at us, ready to destroy us, and destroying is not an obliteration, but it's an ever-destroying, always-killing type of wrath. Before it comes to us, the ground opens up before us and completely and absolutely swallows all of this water so that not even one drop of water would touch us. That's what Jesus does on the cross. At the cross, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God so not one ounce of his wrath will be ever directed toward those who have believed in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what Christ alone means. If you believe in Jesus Christ, there's no wrath for you because it's been fully emptied upon Jesus Christ. Now, how is it that Jesus absorbs God's wrath? That's our next point. Christ alone is our substitute before God. If you look at verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. We have substitutionary atonement. Christ comes as our substitute. We call this the great exchange. So Christ comes, he takes our sins on his body, and he gives us his righteousness. So you see the exchange? He takes our sins, we take his righteousness. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus takes our sin, we take his righteousness. So now, as God looks at you, because you have faith in Christ alone, he sees the righteousness of his son upon you. Isn't that good news? Well, think about this. You're talking to a church who's struggling and persecuted, and Peter's going to come and say, look, you can stand firm, and you can honor Christ Because God sees you as his son. He's not punishing you like a prisoner. He's not pouring out wrath upon you. But you have been adopted, and he wants them to know they've been adopted. So he tells them even Christ has come as their substitute. He wants them to know that they are righteous now in the eyes of our heavenly Father. Martin Luther, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, or I think last week maybe, Martin Luther liked to talk about the gospel in terms of marriage. So he said, picture Jesus as a king, and he comes and he marries a prostitute. At the moment of their marriage, the prostitute now becomes a queen. All that is the king's now becomes hers. She now has a queenly status. All the riches of the king are now the riches that were of the once prostitute, who is now the queen. And all of her sin, all of her shame, the king has taken that as well. So in Christ, as he comes, he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And listen, because of that, we will never improve on the righteousness of Christ. By reading our Bibles, by telling other people about Jesus, by gathering with the church, never missing a Sunday, completing your Bible reading plans, you know, six months ahead of time. Like, that's not going to give us more righteousness. God's not going to say, wow, 
I gave you the righteousness of Jesus, but you really made that look good. Like, we're not going to improve on it. Which, think about the comfort there also. It frees us from all anxiety of trying to earn our way to heaven or, or earn our way or make ourselves that much better. Now, the reason we obey God is not to earn his grace, but it's out of grace. It's out of love. It's out of joy. It's out of delight we do things for him. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, then know that just as Jesus is a son of God, so you are now a son of God. And God has made you a co-heir with his son. Everything that Jesus has, you now possess also. And it's all by grace. So why did Jesus do this? I think that's a good question, right? Like why? Why did he come and suffer? Why did he satisfy God's wrath? Why did he be our substitute? Because of seven amazing words in verse 18. That he might bring us to God. That's why. That he might bring us to God. In Christ alone, you are brought to God. We've gone over Genesis a lot, so I know, I know you know this, but again, we must always remind ourselves of these things. Adam and Eve are created in the image of God. They're created to worship him, but they chose to rebel against him. And at that moment, they're removed from the garden. The garden represents the presence of God, the kingdom of God, his rule, his blessing, his goodness. They're now removed from that. And at that moment, God released what we call a redemptive plan. And that plan was that one day he would purchase a people who would once again dwell in his presence. And we see that that comes fruition through Jesus Christ. So that at the end of the book, when we go to Revelation 21 3, this is what John says And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In the beginning of the book, we're with God. Three chapters in, not very far, we're removed from the presence of God. God's redemption plan is unleashed in the person of Jesus Christ. We see that we come to faith, and at that moment, all who have believed in Christ, all who have faith in God, are promised at the end of the book, they will dwell forever with God. And it won't be in a garden, but it'll be in a new heavens and a new earth. Never, ever to be separated from God again. Here Christ comes and he meets the biggest need that we have, bringing us into the presence of God. Because what we see in scripture is there's no other way to God. There's no other door, no other path, no other means. There's no shortcuts. There's no elevators. There's no escalators. There's no way to get to God. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, comes except, no one comes to the Father except through me. Christ has come. So, how does how's Peter using this to strengthen those he's writing to? How does it strengthen us? Well, number one, it reminds us of our status. It reminds us we are righteous because of what Jesus has done. Not because of what we do. In Christ alone, we are made righteous. 
Again, I want you to know, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous. There is no wrath left for you. There's no wrath left. Number two, he reminds us that we are sons of God. Why? Because of Christ. He stood in our place that we would become righteous and we would become co-heirs with him in the family of God. You have been adopted in the family of God, which means every action God takes towards you is one of love. So whatever persecution you're going through, whatever that is, whatever trouble, whatever trial, that's not God's wrath, but a loving father is working to complete his will. Verse 17 says, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. As a parent, our kids don't always understand why we do the things we do, right? Especially during punishment, right? Especially during discipline, especially when we have rules and stuff like that. They don't always understand those things, but we do them for their good. And there's times in life we don't understand what God is doing, why he's doing it, how this accomplishes his good, but we have truths in God's word that says, for all who have believed in him, God works all things out for the good of his people and for his glory. Peter is also reminding us that we are secure. In Christ alone, you are righteous. You do not earn your way into heaven. You do not earn your way into the presence of God, and therefore, you will not earn your way out of the presence of God. You have been made new, given the Spirit of God, that now you would live for God. He's reminded, you're secure. Whatever trial you're going through, it's not going to undo the work of Jesus Christ. Also, number two, he reminds us of our eternity. He reminds us of our status. He reminds us of our eternity. We're with God now. Do you know that? Like verse 18, that he might bring us to God. Yes, one day we will be in the physical presence of the Father and the Son. But right now, his spirit dwells within us. And in John, we are told that we are in him and he is in us. And that we are held together in union with Jesus Christ. He's reminding the church, I know it looks difficult. I know it's painful, but don't forget, you are with God now. And you will be with God in the future. That new heavens and new earth is coming. He's also showing that suffering, a day of suffering, will come to an end. This suffering is not final. Look at Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins. And then what? Go down to verse 22. He's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He now rules over all powers. He's no longer suffering. And because we're united with him, we know that there is a day also we'll be raised with him never again to suffer and we will rule with him at his right hand forever. Suffering does not have the last word. That's good because we forget that at times, which is why Paul's reminding us of theology this morning. I need you to understand this. I want you to know this. Whatever you're going through, you can rest assured it will not undo what Christ has done. It will not undo it. Because Jesus has risen victorious, because of your faith in Jesus, you too will rise victorious in Christ. Listen, our Our theology matters. It matters 
the way we, we approach marriage. It matters in how we handle our money. When we have money, when we don't have money, it, handle, it matters in our work and our parenting. It matters in everything that we do, and it matters in suffering. Like We push a lot on Bible reading plans. We're starting a, a Wednesday night Bible study. We have if gathering on Friday, Saturday. Next Tuesday, men's Bible study, women's Bible study. We're going to be having several um, women's Bibles, other women's Bible studies, other uh, kind of small group things starting up. We, we do these not, not because we're just like, man, if we can fill their schedules, we feel really good about ourselves. But we want to know the truth of God, and we want to be more transformed by the truth of God. And so Paul, or Peter, the writer, I did good. That's like the first time. When I practiced this, it was like 20 times. Um, Peter doesn't want us to forget this. In fact, I think, like, when we suffer, a lot of times our, our, our emotions become like a roller coaster, and they try to dictate what we do, how we feel. You've been there, right? Like, I'm not alone. Like, you know what I'm talking about? So I think that's why he references Noah also. And just a side note, eight people are saved when the entire world is unrighteous. Eight people. Eight people. Imagine that. Everyone is wicked. You don't even have, they don't even have this many. There's eight. Imagine what they felt like. There's only eight of us. Does God see us? Does God hear us? Is building this boat, is this going to be in vain? All these people keep attacking us and persecuting us. There's only eight of us. If God paid attention to eight and saved them, how much more will he pay attention to his bride today? How much more confidence do we have today that he saves us and that suffering will come to an end? How much more confidence? He paid attention to eight. How much more now of his bride in this world? Um, I want to remind you, when we come to God's word, always remember who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and who I am because of the work of Jesus. In Christ alone, we've been saved. In Christ alone, we are being saved. In Christ alone, we've been made righteous. In Christ alone, you've been adopted in the family of God. And in Christ alone, you are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and we're going to ask the men to come forward, and we're going to take of communion. Father, we come to you, and we thank you that everything of your gospel, all of your grace comes to us in Christ alone. Not a thing, not a what, but a who. Your grace comes to us in Christ because Jesus is your grace. And Lord, I pray that we as a church, we would know that if we have believed in you, we are justified, we are righteous. You have stood in our place absorbing the wrath of God so that we would forever experience your grace, your love, your mercies, your compassion. God, whatever comes our way in this world, may we honor you, and may we live like you, because you alone have died for us. You alone have secured us. You alone are our grace. And God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.